Honoring our veterans is about more than just discounts at stores and parades. For some, like Sergeant Matthew Luchabello, a public affairs specialist with the 30th Public Affairs Detachment, it goes much deeper. In this episode of the Stand Guard podcast, Sergeant Luchabello tells us about his love of military railway history and how he uses reenacting as a way to remember the service and sacrifice of those who came before him. From the battlefield to the home front, our military is ripe with incredible stories and we want to tell them to you. Welcome to the Stand Guard Podcast, a show dedicated to uncovering the remarkable stories of our service members and our military history that often goes untold. I'm your host, Tim Coster, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Major Dave Pitlick. Let's see what we can dig up today. Let's hear about those trains. Yeah. Where do we start? You got to take a trip recently, so tell us about that. Okay, so recently I was able to go down and cover Operation Sergeant Santa. So Operation Sergeant Santa was an event down at Fort Eustis, Virginia, held in part by the Southampton USO and then the Military Railway Society. So the Military Railway Society is a group of half Army soldiers. Now all of them are Army railroaders, although we do have a railroading MOS. It's only in the Army Reserve, and I think it's about like 80 soldiers. Very small, but a crucial force in our organization. And it was half like Army railroaders, and then half people like me who just have an interest in trains. And they operated the Army Railroad down there, which was the uh, the Fort Eustis line, which used to be used from I think 1947 up until I want to say they stopped using it. As a rail line, at least for steam, we used to drive steam locomotives, uh, I want to say in like the late 70s. But they continue to use it to this day to train uh, Army railroaders. But we operate a locomotive on there, a diesel locomotive, and we gave military families and uh, soldiers that were on the base a Christmas-themed train ride. Nice. That's pretty and cool. It's pretty well attended, too. I mean, it's pretty high yeah. visibility. You were saying something about a train lord, like the Army train lord? Oh, yeah. So, uh, Brett... I remember his last name, but so he's the duty train master. So he was one of the soldiers that was there. I guess, I don't know if, I, if I'd say he's a current soldier, if he's a former soldier, because he's still in the DOD, but I think he's an army civilian now. But he basically is the, the train master, as we call train it. Lord. Train lord. <laughs> uh, Star lord. So he is in charge of all army railroading operations, like the training and curriculum for like the DOD's railway operations, not just the army. And he was actually on board the train and was like, he, he drove the train a couple of times and also some of the other licensed uh, railroaders that are part of the group got to that, drive the train and even some of the uh, Army Reserve soldiers, they actually came down and then for training for themselves, but uh, they actually got to drive some of the trains for uh, the event, get some you know behind the wheel time. Yeah. And you're saying we used to have a railroad unit here like in Connecticut? Yeah, so... There were two railroad units, at least during World War II, that were sponsored by Connecticut Railroad. So how it worked in World War II, the Army basically took a bunch of trained railroad men from our civilian railroads, and they were like, hey, we're going to you know, basically induct you into the Army, but we want you to keep doing what you're doing. Obviously, you have a very specialized skill set, and that's going to be your role for the duration of the war. And so Connecticut had two railway battalions which was the 729th Railway Operating Battalion and then the 749th Railway Operating Battalion. 729th, I believe, served in the Pacific, and the 749th served uh, in Europe. And they 
we're both sponsored from the Hartford, New Haven, and New York Rail Line. I'm probably mixing the uh, the terms up, but the New Haven Railroad. So they were primarily Connecticut staff, like I, all New Englanders, um, at least initially. And they were taken from our railroads and basically given rank and uh, given a uniform and then in turn operated those trains and also taught soldiers like later on coming into the unit when they started drafting more men, you know, how it is to railroad. That's kind of crazy. Like when you think of the draft, it kind of seems like it'd be more random, but they actually went out and found a sector that they needed. Mm-hmm. And then they drafted those people to actually do that job. That's kind of mm-hmm. It's different. That's not the way we think about it normally going. No. So the 729th was, I believe, the unit that stayed on past World War II, so they were at a Middletown. Uh, the Middletown Armed Forces Reserve Center, I believe, is where they actually drilled out of, like, later in the... Well, uh, yeah, it would have been another site in Middletown, but yeah. Oh, okay. So they, I want to say were in a unit until, like, the early 2000s. Like, they changed their name a bit. Or actually, it might have been in the 90s. They disbanded but then we kept like a rail company here and then eventually that went away like we had the 1048th transportation company i think it was that also was a connecticut unit that was army reserve and operated trains so connecticut actually surprisingly has a a decent railroading history beyond just the civilian railroads yeah i mean we don't have a lot of army railroaders nowadays right no yeah like i said it's a very small (laughs) mos um most army railroad operations are now done by army civilians and it's a it's contracted compared to, you know, back in the day, like the way we used to do business, basically. Yeah. Where everything was done by somebody in uniform. Yep. That's, that's pretty cool. Um, I mean, do there, is there a lot of rail operations in the state side or is, cause I know they do a lot over in Europe as far as, you know, getting, you know, tanks and other heavy equipment around Europe and mm-hmm. into the Middle East. Like what, what kind of operations do they do here in the States that you know? Well, of? right now I know the 757th Expeditionary Rail Center, I think is the Army's sole railway unit. And then there's also a unit operated by the Marines out in Barstow. But basically, like, a lot of the times on, like, bases, I think, like, uh, Fort Carson still has some Army locomotives running around and Army-operated trains. Um, I believe Fort Bragg does. Uh, of course, Eustis, being the, the transportation uh, center, has our Army railroading still going on. Um, but they'll transport, you know, equipment that's not always contracted out to, like, CSX or some of the civilian rail companies. Or, like, they'll make up the trains and at least, like, get it ready to be transported by those civilian railroad organizations and then of course like for instance in afghanistan i don't know if the army operated it but i know we secured it we actually built a railroad in afghanistan i believe around herat to the border i want to say to uzbekistan and that was a i think a line that we ran at at one point i know we had railway operations in iraq as well and i think to this day, we still do railway operations in Kuwait. Again, usually moving equipment uh, in and out of theater. Yeah. Now, we sent you there to go take photos. So mm-hmm. did you get any good photos? What was oh, your yeah. experience like going to do that? So that was cool. So, you know, of course, being a, a reenactor, I actually got to, like, dress up in, like, 1960s-themed uh, military attire. So you LARP trains? I LARPed trains. Okay. It was basically like if you had like a Christmas set, you know, like every boy's dream around Christmas, they set the train up at the bottom of the tree. Instead, I actually got to be on the train and I, I full experience. Nice. Um, and free. I got a free train ride. Like, it's pretty awesome. We did like, I want to say it was about like five, five or more trains a day, usually going in from like nine in the morning to like, I want to say the last train was around like 7 p.m. at night all in, like, civilian donated for this event uh, rail cars. So we had, like, 
I want to say the oldest train car was a passenger car, and I think it was from like 1914 or 1918, uh, still operational and like fully restored on the inside and all everything like how it was in the day. So it was a super comfortable ride, and it was nice. You know, you got to see all these kids come around. Like we had a, we had a, a Sergeant Santa dressed up, a couple of soldiers actually got to dress up as Santa Claus and you know pa- uh, pass out little bells to some of the kids and stuff like that. And you know, kids got to see Santa, so it made a lot of people's day. And I think. The kids really enjoyed it. So, nice. so all right. So, obviously, you're a big, a big train fanatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, military, outside the military, what is your favorite train story? <sighs> My favorite train story, like Thomas the Tank Engine, like, or I mean, like, like I grew up on it. Like Thomas the Tank Engine, like Polar Express, is a classic. Like, yeah, the CGI isn't like the best. It hasn't really stood the test of time with their like dead droopy eyes. But it's a good movie. Um, I think one of my favorite stories is not an army story, at least in full. Unfortunately, it comes from the Korean War, and that's when a bunch of uh, really disgruntled CBs got told, basically, I think actually by army high command, to sneak behind enemy lines and steal some locomotives that got left behind after the line started to fall back. And they snuck in, they literally stole these locomotives from the North Koreans and then drove them just across the front line and got them back uh, to our held territory. And it's like known as like the greatest locomotive uh, robbery that ever was. And there may or may not have been some alcohol involved also on these trains that was may or may not also have been taken. Um, But that's, well, I I don't know if you're aware of this, but the, uh, the first medal of honor recipients Mm. received it for stealing a train. Stealing trains are just an American pastime. (laughs) I mean, if you're not stealing a train, what are you even doing? So yeah, yeah. I mean, but yeah, have you heard that story before? Isn't that like a Disney movie now too? It, it was the, made the, into a movie. Amer- I don't know if it was a Disney movie, but yeah, there is. It it's was. called the Great Locomotive Chase. Yeah, I believe. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I have a copy naturally. Oh, of course, of course. yeah. But yeah, that's that's uh, that's based on a true story. And those mm. uh, those guys, I can't remember what they called themselves. They were something Raiders, I think, uh, were the first people to get the Medal of Honor in U.S. history. Hmm. I stole a train. That, that's how I won my medal. I'd be proud of it. I mean, yeah. Like, like the, how the many sad people can is, really say that? The sad thing is, though, you don't get to keep it. You know, like, Uncle Sam gets to keep it. Like, that's cool. Like, you, you made a contribution. Yeah, but you have the story. The story's what matters. Yeah. Who cares about the train? But, I mean, if you went through all that effort, wouldn't you want to also keep... Keep the memories in your heart. It's fine. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you may not... He may, they may, have not, may not have known about it at the time, but, mm. I mean, it was a great story and it helped, you know, lead the union to victory. Um, uh, and yeah, I mean, like you said, stealing a train, like it, it sounds like something from a movie and not from mm-hmm. real life, but here we are. It's, it's 100% factual, um, yep. stealing trains, getting awarded for it. Yeah. And those people were super famous. Like that was back in newspaper days. So like, yeah, they were in print all over the country. Right. Nowadays it would have been, there would have been like live feeds, Nowadays, probably would have been a hashtag at the very least, hmm. I imagine. Or it, like, it at least would have blown up on Insta. Like, no, oh, absolutely. No, he, un- unbelievably fast. Like yeah. Facebook Live. Can you imagine Facebook Living it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like there would be some OPSEC violations going on there, uh, especially considering it was a live operation. But um, And yeah. they are being chased. Yeah, yeah. Like, they, they were, were cutting well. like, telegraph lines along yeah. the way and being chased by the Southerners. Right, right. And uh, sadly, not everybody made it out. Uh, some people were captured. And sure. I, I think some of them were executed. I don't remember hmm. um, for their treasons against the South. But um, 
regardless, it was you know a, a fascinating story. Yeah. Um, and regardless of whether they get to to keep it or not, you know, it's still a much better story than some of the. Uh, Medal of Honor recipients yeah. stories. That I mean, they heard. actually did something. They didn't just do capture the flag. Or yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, are you aware of the capture the flag Medal of Honors? I think I've heard of this before. Is this like for capturing the like enemy regiment's colors? Y- yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, it's one hundred percent. Like they got the enemy flag and they're like, "Oh, congratulations! You did such a good job. Here's a Medal of Honor." It's mm. like he could have been hiding in a foxhole the whole time and then like the guy with the flag died on top of him he's like i got the flag pick it up yeah (laughs) Yeah. and then just run it back run the colors back home right are you saying people who play griff ball in halo are not like deserving of or capture the flag in halo are not deserving of the medal of honor Uh, i i would argue that uh that is correct yeah no okay um you know maybe they can get you know uh, a halo medal Mm. Um, an achievement, maybe. Yeah, yeah, maybe they can unlock an achievement, an Xbox achievement for, you know, capturing a flag. But, uh, yeah, no, I don't, I don't see that as being uh, the highest national, national medal of valor worthy. Mm. Well, well I mean, more? didn't you have, like, a great story that you wrote about those, like, medals of honor up in Maine, <laughs> and they just kind of, like, wound up in somebody's, like, shed or something? Y- yeah, yeah. So, um, oh, God, I'm, I'm spacing on the... the unit that it was but it was a unit out of Maine mm-hmm. um from Maine so it's a <laughs> deep in my heart here but um yeah so they were on duty during the civil war protecting the capital DC mm-hmm. and uh toward they were just getting toward the end of their deployment when uh president lincoln asked them to stay on because the 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 southern armies were getting close to you know like um to Gettys- like they were marching to Gettysburg at that point, right? Mm. So they were getting close to D.C. and they're like, "Guys, will you will you stay here and protect the Capitol?" And most of them were like, mm, "No," but and so then Lincoln was like, "Well, listen, we will give you the Medal of Honor if you stay and protect the Capitol." And so out of the three hundred soldiers of that unit, I think it was like six stayed behind or something. It was it was a very mm. small number. Um, but there was, of course, naturally a, uh, a paperwork mix-up uh, when they went to go send the, the medals back home to, to Maine. They're like, well, we just have a list of everyone in the unit, so we're just going to issue 300 medals of honor to everyone in this unit from Maine. Um, and then during the – there was a um, – uh, what do you call it? Uh, a survey done of all the medals of honor in 1919, I believe. And mm-hmm. people were going through and be like, wait a second none of this is worthy. Like none of these people even deserve this. And so they revoked all of them. Uh, And so it created a little bit of controversy uh, because they sent the box, like just basically a box of the medals up to Maine to the governor. And the governor's like, I don't know what to do with this. So he sent it to the commander. But back then, you know, it wasn't like everybody was, you know, drilling out of, you know, they're all farmers and they were all over the state. Some of them didn't even live in the state anymore. And so like the guy did his best to try to hand out the medals, but like a lot of them went missing and no one knows where they are. Um, some suspect he just like tossed them in his barn and it was just like, mm. if I find the guy, I'll give it to him. But otherwise it's just going to kind of stay here. here. And then people, like they, like I said, they went missing. People think they were probably looted out of there. They were stolen. Um, Could have been caribous. It, it, <laughs> I don't know what what is it with you and caribou. It's like and Maine. the one thing I know. It's like Maine. It's like lobster, caribou. Like what else? Do you have potatoes. 
probably potatoes. We, yeah, we have potatoes. Blueberries are very popular up there. Sure. <laughs> and caribou. <laughs> Is it Maine or Vermont that has more cows, like, per capita than people? Uh, yeah, I believe that's Vermont. It's Vermont, oh, okay. But, I mean, I... I don't have the stats in front of me to confirm that or (laughs) or deny it. So, yeah. So, but going back to your your trains, right? So, uh, you said before you were also a, um, I was going to say impersonator, but not an impersonator. You're, uh, you do reenactments, a reenactor. Yep. Um, So, how did that get started? That's a long story. So, when I was growing up, my grandfather was in the Air Force. He was in the Air Force from like 1947 to I want to say like the early uh, 50s. And, you know, naturally he was big into the military. Uh, so when I come around, and I would always like hang out with my grandparents because they live literally three houses down uh, the street from me. We'd always watch like the military channel and whatnot growing up. Um, and unfortunately, probably for him, he always would put on like World War II documentaries and it would always be the army. So naturally I got more and more interested in army history and uh, the military in general. And, you know, I found out about reenacting by going to, like, some of the museums and stuff like that. Uh, usually, like, a lot of museums will, like, for instance, up in uh, in Massachusetts, they have, like, Battle for the Airfield. They'll do, like, kind of like an air show, kind of esque, like, show. And that's usually like, what some reenactments are, where it's, uh, you know, uniformed personnel from both sides duking it out, like, in a, a field to the public can watch and kind of get, like, a sliver of what you know, combat would have looked like uh, from whatever era they're representing. And then there's also other types of reenactment where it's like more like living history, so to speak, or like public uh, like historical interpretation. So that's where actually like a reenactor will talk to somebody, usually again wearing like all period clothing and like maybe they're eating like a period meal or something like that, just showcasing like, again, like a sliver of the time period to somebody. And I always thought that was really interesting because it was like, in, in a way you're living like someone else did back then so you can kind of get that shared experience you kind of can understand like how it felt and uh what it was like and so i just you know got interested in, in that and i was, i started researching more and more of him and uh, started going to a couple like reenactments and stuff like that and you know here i am now i i do a bunch of different units and i've gone to a lot of different places over the states to go to these reenactments I'm sure you've met some interesting people, too. I oh, mean, It seems like there's, like, a very specific sort of person that does this reenacting. I didn't realize there was reenactor drama. Like, I oh. learned so much. <laughs> so, be- before you, you talk about that, ha- have you guys ever drama? seen the show American Housewife? No. I think it was on ABC. I know my, of it, but I haven't. My, my wife was watching it, and I was watching it with her, and... Uh, the one of the main characters is the dad in the family. It's a it's a family comedy, right? And the dad is played by oh, what's his name, uh, Dietrich Bader, I think is his yeah, last I name. Yeah, um, he was Drew Carey, I yeah. think, back in the day. Um, he plays the dad, and he's a historical. He's a historian, no, not historian, a history te- professor mm-hmm. at a college, and he's also a local reenactor. Okay. He he, uh, he reenacts because I guess the town that they live in has this strong history of. I want to say revolutionary war, mm. like shenanigans, basically, and they they put on these uh, th- these uh, role playing events every year, and uh, they get really into it. But naturally, because it's a comedy, like they the family goes in, and the family doesn't care about this mm-hmm. whatsoever, and so things start happening that aren't quote unquote 
historically accurate. Oh, God. And, <laughs> and then people start getting upset. Yeah. And then they start, like, rewriting history about, you know, rather than just being like, okay, that didn't happen. Like, just pretend that didn't happen. It's like, oh, no, like, little Johnny's been killed. But little Johnny wasn't really killed. How is how is we going to fix history about this? And mm. it, it, it's, it's ridiculously funny. And uh, is that, like, the type of drama that people have been early? What, what's the there's, drama that goes on at this type of There's so events? much drama. So, again, you, you attract a very specific type of person. Well, I won't say a specific type of person. There's, there's a lot of different people. There's a lot of good, like, nature people, again, people who are into history. Maybe they, they do it because, again, they want to kind of put themselves in the shoes of the guys that they're portraying or the girls they're portraying because there's also female reenactors as well. But you also get a slice of people who have a lot of insight, a lot of knowledge, you know, maybe a lot of bookworms, but maybe not the most amount of social skills. And they love to uh, dump that information on you. That That's one type of person, the info dumper, who will just, like, tell you every little bit about how, like, this uniform was made in, like, 1967. And, like, you could tell because the stitching is yellow compared to dark brown. Whether or not you want to hear it. Yeah. So, like... That's, like, one person, I guess, there's, like, also a subsect called, like, Stitch Nazis, which I don't know if that comes from the German reenacting community, um, if that's where it started, because there's definitely Stitch Nazis on the Allied side as well, where, again, it's, like, someone will have, like, let's say you're, you're doing, like, an impression based on, like, the invasion of Normandy in 1944, well, someone might come up to you and be like, well, that, you know, pouch isn't the right color for that year, or, like, I don't know if we have photo evidence of that particular uh, pouch being used on June 6th, so, like, you can't wear it, but, like, the Army Quartermaster started issuing this stuff out, like, a year prior, and you, you get, like, just a very interesting group of people who sometimes are very constructive and give you great criticism and welcome you into the community and want to shape you and mold you into, again, portraying these guys in the best possible light and trying to be as authentic as possible, I think is every reenactor's goal. Or I shouldn't say that's, that's not every reenactor's goal because there, there are definitely some people who just do it to LARP, who just do it because they enjoy wearing a costume and enjoy like, thinking that they're you know, from Band of Brothers. or Yeah, there's just many people, uh, good and bad, both sides of the... Nice. So when, when, you, when you go out and do reenactors, you, you, you say you've done uh, different units. Mm -hmm. um, is there a particular era of history you like to focus on is it world war ii world war one yeah and then also have you have you seen like are there are there reenactments from things older than that like oh absolutely do, do, they, do, they, do they do reenactments from like ancient greece times or something like that i don't know if we have at least like in the northeast ancient greece reenactments and again there's, there's many types so you have like some people who do it um as part of groups and sometimes they'll do like private events where like, there's no public, and it's very, like, immersive. So, like, for instance, in the World War II reenactment community, we have what's called, like, campaigner events. And campaigner events are usually, like, the most strict. They're the most uh, authentic in terms of, like, usually aren't going to have, like, your cell phone. You know, you're, you're, there's not going to be, like, usually modern cameras around unless, like, there's a unit photographer taking photos to, like, document the event. Um, you're going to be away from your car. You're going to be sleeping out on the ground in like a shelter half or like a tent or whatever in your old sleeping bag in your, you know, your uniform. And, you know, you might run into like a patrol of Germans or something like that. And you have your battles, but like other than the battle, which, you know, some reenactments are just battles. You actually, in these campaigner events will be living the life, you know, like you'll be pulling guard duty. You'll be having like chow breaks and stuff like that. Like if you were an infantryman on a front line in the field, but I mean, there's 
I know in New England specifically, there's a lot of Revolutionary War reenactment, again, because Connecticut and like New England has a lot of ties and rich history with those wars. Civil War as well. Uh, World War One. there's some, there's some uh, World War One reenactors, I think, more so out of New York, the East Coast Doughboys. Um, that are a very popular group and like for instance I actually I marched with them uh, one day in the uh, Veterans Day Parade that they have in New York City so I wasn't part of the group um, I was actually in my ASU's because I got invited from a, a funeral director to come out and march but you know they marched in their World War One uniforms like and some of these guys were in like their original uniforms with like original boots from like 1918 and how they didn't like split apart as they were marching down the avenue uh it's pretty, it's pretty pretty impressive, but I'm sure that like it's got to be. There have to be opportunities for something funny to happen. Do you have any like really memorable stories? Anything really funny happen at one of these events? I'm trying to think if I have anything that's like shareable. <laughs> Again, because a lot of like my funny moments revolve reenactor drama, but like unless I explain the situation, which is just going to be ten it's minutes lost of, on us. I yeah. Gotcha. It's one of those, like, you have to, like, be in the community to kind of, like, understand, like, the nuance of, like, why this is funny. It's like an inside joke. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. Um, well, while you, while you think about that, let me ask you this. You know, one of the things I've always found interesting about reenacting is, you know, I, I've seen some reenactments of, you know, like, World War II battles, um, but they're here in the United States. How do, you, how do you get around the, you know, whether it's, like, a, a mental thought or, you know, the, a physical thing? Like, how do you get into the, the mindset of, going into, say, like, the Battle of the Bulge when you're in, like, Pennsylvania or something, mm. right? Like, it's obviously different, landscape right. different, everything else. How, how, do you, how do you get into that mindset um, as a reenactor? I think, again, like, you know, terrain obviously plays a part in it, but when you're in the woods, and especially, too, if you're in, like, pine trees, like, pine trees are everywhere, throughout France and Germany, um... And, you know, you're, you and the people next to you are all wearing olive drab and, you know, you all have M1 rifles and stuff like that. And now you're getting shot at by guys who look like Germans, you know, across a field. I think you're going to get immersed regardless, even if, you know, it's fall. And there's also like regular trees with leaves that are changing color, which might not be like 100 percent accurate for the time period and the location that you're supposed to be portraying, you know, with, with everything, there's going to be a, a little bit of give and take, right? It's not going to always be one for one and, and no reenactment can ever truly replicate combat and no reenactment can ever truly capture the entire experience, but it's only supposed to be like a sliver. You're, you're basically, at least for that moment in time, being immersed in that situation, almost like kind of like looking at something in a lens. You were talking earlier about, the people who are very stringent on uniforms has the location of a reenactment ever gotten on the nerves of those types of people. Yeah. Yeah. I have a buddy right now who wants to do a reenactment. He wants to host one, but he can't find a suitable location that makes sense for the setting that he wants to be portraying. So again, like I think there's people like out West, especially like out in Arizona and stuff like that. Um, in, in Texas who do like Pacific themed reenactment, and while some areas might look okay, you know, because there's some vegetation, I don't think Texas really matches, like, you know, the Doesn't jungles like the of the South Pacific. Pacific. Yeah. Right. Has your time in the military, how long have you been in for now? Seven years. Seven years. Has your time in the military and as a soldier, you were intel before you were public affairs, correct? Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, has your time in the military assisted you in becoming a better uh, reenactor as, as a military reenactor? Yeah, I mean, 
it gives you a perspective. I think it's like a double-edged sword. On one hand, I think there's some people in the reenactment community because there's a lot of veterans in the reenactment community, whether they're still in or, you know, are 100% veteran, like they, they got out, ETS, whatever, and now they still want to, like, I guess, like, have a feel for military service or, again, portray maybe some guys or a unit that they were a part of. Some of those guys are great, but then there's also a group who will come in and kind of take the experiences that they had and kind of imp- apply them to periods where those experiences might not be shared. So, you know, like, I can't come in to World War II with combat knowledge and intelligence uh capabilities that were not a thing during World War II. Like, it just doesn't correlate. It doesn't, right. it doesn't cross. Um, right, you're not, like, running coin operations. Exactly. In, like, and there were no satellites Germany. or anything yeah. else. Like, I mean, there's some really cringeworthy people, especially in the German community, who, uh, because they have went to Afghanistan or Iraq and fought counterinsurgency operations, they're like, oh, I'll wear this German anti-partisan badge. And it's like, one, I don't know if we want to be drawing parallels between hunting partisans, especially if we understand what partisans were during World War II to the Nazis, to U.S. military service fighting terrorism in Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah, that's not painting any positive light. No, 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 no. not at all. But some people are like that, and it's like, no, man, that's not, that doesn't correlate. Now, again, like, for instance, I have my Army Good Conduct medal. That was a medal during World War II. So, like, if I did, like, a dress impression, I would wear that. And then, again, there's some people... But, and like, what if you were reenacting a bad soldier? A like, bad, like, a, like a mischievous soldier? Yeah, or somebody who's just really bad at it. Who would I don't be? know if there's many people who do that, but, like, again, like, there's a, there's a lot of different reenactment groups, and there's a lot of different uh, people who do it. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if someone did, like, a one-off, like, reenactment of that, but I've, I imagine it would probably be, like, a photo shoot and, like, just that, just to, like, show the story in, like, a modern light. But, I mean, you could do that. I... I I want to say when I went to a recent reenactment, there was a a wrestling like match, and I don't know if it got broken up by the MPs or not, but like there was a hundred percent like some fights that were going down, all all like in in good fun, like not like actual brawls. But have you ever met anyone who has um, tried to role play like a real person as opposed to just being like I'm you know private Joe oh, yeah. Snuffy? <laughs> I have photographed Dwight D. Eisenhower, or at least the guy who believes he's Dwight D. Eisenhower. <laughs> I mean, and like, granted, he he actually pulled it off decently well, but it's it's again, it's it's reenacting. I don't want to say it's it's LARPing. It's not LARPing. Depends on who you talk to, but yeah, but but basically, what like there's some people who just you know maybe they were a Dwight D. Eisenhower fan and they were trying oh, yeah. to uh, you know look at his role in. Does you know, Eisenhower have fanboys? Like, oh, I'm sure is he that a does. Thing? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Kind of like a K-pop band. Like, I mean, I'm sure they're probably all older now. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean, well, what was the pin that they used to have? It was like, wasn't his name Dick? It was like a vote for Dick or I. Um, I like gonna, Ike. I like Ike. Yeah, yeah, but there's another one. I'm pretty sure for Eisenhower. That's not as PC, but anyway, moving on. Um, I'm one of my buddies, for instance, he just did a reenactment um, out in Pennsylvania based off uh, the 801st, I think, Ordnance Detachment or Ordnance Company. Uh, his great uncle or his great grandfather was actually in the unit, and he took like the photos that he had of his relative and recreated his uniform like one to one, and then like acted as his role. I think he was like a 
a clerk or some form of uh, like quartermaster, some form of like uh, administrative sergeant. And so he actually, in his unit of people, did those roles. Like he actually performed the roles that his relative performed, again, in a simulated environment uh, at a reenactment. That, that seems like a pretty cool way to kind of keep yeah. that family member's legacy alive. Mm-hmm. I guess my question to you would be, what's your takeaway? So if you're trying to get other people involved in this community and mm-hmm. it's so important to you, why should they get involved? I feel like your heart has to be in the right place. So there's a lot of people who get involved again. Like There's good and bad people in every organization, no matter what you do, no matter what hobby you have. But at the end of the day, reenacting shouldn't be LARPing. It shouldn't be cosplaying. And I understand why some people have that perception of it. And I'm not saying it's unwarranted, but... At the end of the day, you're putting yourself in the shoes of somebody who more than likely now is gone. And it's up to you to be able to honor that person and honor, you know, what they did. Not not everyone has to reenact an infantryman, for instance, or a tanker or a pilot. It could be, you know, again, a railway soldier who just ferried supplies. And I don't mean to just say, like, just ferried as if it's meaningless. But I think a lot of people tend to look towards what's the most, like, glory ridden um role they're thinking like hollywood the movie yeah they always see it's always the action it's always the people fighting yeah and it's not always about that and i and again i think like you need to understand that you're just putting yourself in these people's shoes and that they went through these experiences they were real experiences you know especially too like for the guys who reenact the infantry when you get shot and you die you're not actually dying you're not actually getting wounded and Someone lived that. Someone died from that. Like, I've been to France. I've been to Normandy. I've been on both of Omaha and Utah Beach. I've been to the American Military Cemetery that's there, and I've, I've seen the crosses, and I've seen people's names. You know, I've seen the ages of some of the people that are buried there, and a lot of them are younger than me. And they gave up their entire lives. They gave up their ability to live a full and good life, to have children, to follow their dreams to do what they wanted to do in order to, you know, step up and serve and protect the nation and to stop tyranny, to rid the world of a great evil. And again, I think it's up to you to be able to honor those people and keep their memory alive because that's what historical interpretation, that's what living history and reenacting is supposed to be. It's supposed to be telling their story, bringing life, their story and showing people in a different medium. This is what it was like. This, this is, you know, this could have been you. And so if you want to get into it, I feel like that's something that you have to have in your heart. You have to be coming from that place and to always, again, strive to be authentic and strive to be a person who brings good to the community and brings good to the public and honors the people who came before them. Right. It's all about kind of what's in their heart, what's their purpose for doing it. Mm -hmm. And when you make it about somebody else, then it's a much more noble pursuit. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> I, I do actually have one more question. Sure. Have Have you ever had someone who's like a World War II veteran come and see your reenactments? And if you if so, like what were their impressions of it? So I've been to a couple of like public reenactments um, where there are a few World War II vets. Like usually it's like no more than like three or five. Uh, but a lot of times they'll come and they'll actually like talk with you. You know, you get to a lot of times people will come to them and they'll, they'll thank them for their service and they'll ask them their story and kind of get their perspective. Um, some of my buddies have even been told, like, hey, like, you look the part. Like, you look like 
a buddy of mine. You remind me of someone who's since passed. And, you know, that means a lot. Because, again, like, that shows, hey, like, it's like being an actor, right? Like, again, reenactor. You have nailed the role so well that people who live through this period now identify themselves with you. They, they find a commonality with you. And, again, like, you, you get to, to see that impact. Like, I, I, don't, I haven't seen any, anything, like, drastic, like, you know, where it's, like, you see a veteran in tears or something like that. But, for instance, I have a World War II vet buddy um, who I met. Uh, his name's John Heller. Uh, he's in, from Fairfield, Connecticut. He's a 10th Mountain vet like me. And I met his family uh, when I was a PFC, when I was up at Fort Drum. I went on a battlefield tour of where the 10th Mountain fought in Italy. And I ran to two guys from Connecticut, his grandchildren. And after the trip, they actually uh, enabled me to meet him. And since then, I've had a great relationship with him. I, I go and see him usually at least a couple times a year. Like, uh, if not, I'll try to like, call him at least like once a month or, you know, just see how he's doing, uh, keep up with him. And we've shared stories. He's told me a bunch of stories about the war. I've, I've interviewed him a couple of times on video. Uh, he showed me all his like photo album, and he's you know recounted memories, both good and bad, of his experiences. And that's one of the units that I portray, that I uh, reenact, especially too, because I have a, a part in it. I was part of that unit. Um, I feel a, a bigger connection compared to like let's say the hundred and first, or like the first infantry division. Both units I've never been a part of, and it, it enables me to have a, a greater you know, respect and understanding for these guys and the guys who, you know, came before me. And so with that, Sergeant Matthew Luchabell, thank you so much for thank joining for us today me. on the Stand Guard podcast. That's going to do it for us today. Um, if you are a member of the Connecticut National Guard or you have a story that you think would be interesting to the Connecticut National Guard, please reach out. Uh, and you want to be a guest on the podcast, uh, standguardpodcast at gmail.com. You can reach us out there. Let us know. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Stand Guard Podcast, a production of the Connecticut National Guard. Please make sure to like and follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts.